Welcome to Sports, Clicks, and Politics with your hosts, Ben Husson and me, Sean Hannon. Welcome to episode 13 of Sports, Clicks, and Politics. Today is a special edition. We have our first live interview here at Sports Clicks and Politics. We are welcome to our, you know, welcome County Executive Ryan McMahon here in two seconds. Um, ben, how was your weekend? It was great. Uh, anything exciting? Not as exciting as our interview, I'll tell you what. Nope, I'm, I'm excited about our interview as well. Um, you guys may know the County Executive, uh, Ryan McMahon. Um, Ryan, are you there with us? Can you hear us? I can hear you, yeah. Thanks I can't for having see, me. I can't see you yet, so I'm going to keep manipulating here. But while I fixed the video, I was tipped off um, to something over the weekend that your family may be fans of the TV show Parks and Recreation. Is that true? <laughs> that is true. My uh, uh, actually, all my, my my daughter, my guy now uh, have been watching that show, <laughs> and I got to get caught up on it. I watched originally uh but i i gotta get caught up they're talking about specific episodes now (laughs) all right so follow up who's your favorite character on parks and rec and why is it ron swanson so well well my family uh love ron swanson because they uh basically they uh they view ron as being uh, a very libertarian department head of the Parks and Recreation. And uh, so uh, they think it's funny. Kate, actually, Sean, compared you to Ron a little bit uh, with some of your your, uh, political uh, leanings. Yes, Yes, well, well, he's he's my my spirit spirit animal, so that's (laughs) fitting. Um, Let's... let's Let's go back to the beginning here. Let's, uh, well, actually, you know what? I want to touch on real one thing before we talk all things COVID. Do you have anything you'd like to talk about the Amazon project at all here? Uh, I know that's kind of been a big thing here locally, but if, before we get into craziness, let's talk about something maybe more positive. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, certainly uh, we have two projects with Amazon, uh, the one being the very large, uh, really second largest logistics e-commerce facility in uh, in in the world at this point. Um, they're replicating this model in other regions of the country, uh, but we are the first one. Uh, we uh, announced this project in 19. We got a quick 90-day turn time uh, to be able to secure the lease, secure the business uh, with Amazon. So right now, if you go out on Morgan Road, uh, you'll see what is a massive facility being built hundreds and hundreds of people uh, locally working on the project, uh, spending millions of dollars here locally to help support our local businesses. Uh, And then again, by September 2021, we're going to have that ready for operation and uh, well over a thousand local residents will be working there. Uh, In addition to that, a smaller project is going on out in DeWitt uh, where that construction is going to be started. Uh, and, And again, more local workforce opportunities uh, more employment opportunities uh, with all the construction going on in our community right now. Uh, the trades and uh, construction companies are doing quite well. It's many of the other economic sectors that are not doing well. Um, so uh, that is good news. Uh, in 2021, those jobs will be very, very important to our recovery. Uh, and we're just glad that we were able to get that deal done and it wasn't impacted by the pandemic. Okay, excellent. That's all. I mean, I think most of the community is excited about that. What 
let's go back to when, when did you start first getting, you know, daily updates or information that you were getting from state officials that, hey, you need to be start paying attention to this, the, the COVID that is. And, you know, at what point, like I know the lockdowns happened mid-March, but when did you actually start getting information that this was going to be something you were going to have to deal with on a somewhat daily basis? So we actually met uh, internally with our senior team and our emergency management teams in February uh, before we had a case in the country. Uh, and just, just to talk about this, talk about a little bit about this. You know, before this process, Sean, if you look at all of our departments and, and, and county government, our emergency management department is probably the one I was somewhat least familiar with because just we hadn't had emergencies to the degree uh, where uh, we needed to really step in outside of some of your basic uh, things in communities. So uh, they actually train and their training um, is uh, very similar to what has happened. Uh, they, they, and so uh, when, when we look, we started talking in February, I actually went to a National Association of Counties uh, conference with my peers across the country in early March. And while I was there is when the initial outbreak in the nursing home in Seattle occurred in uh, Kings County, Washington. And uh, right then we met with the White House uh, and uh, our, our New York State delegation. We got briefed in there, started meeting with the CDC. And then when we got home, we started uh, preparing and planning uh, for what could be, uh, you know, a situation where we would have this virus here. Uh, and so we immediately brought in our all of our uh, stakeholders, our hospital stakeholders, started looking at plans and preparation because it was all unknown. And so uh, really in early March, we started planning and preparing. Uh, we then, with our stakeholders, uh, started putting in mitigation uh, techniques, uh, specifically our, our triage testing site that we got up at the Syracuse uh, uh, Community Health Center um, before we had cases. And I think that's what helped us really in the beginning um, not see infection rates in the, in the 20s and 30s. And I think the highest seven-day average we ever got to was 12 uh, because we were testing uh, before uh, we had cases. But during that time period, certainly uh, patient zero in Westchester County. Uh, we saw what happened there. And then uh, it really wasn't a, a lot of communication with our state or federal partners because the state got very inundated in response down in below New York City. It was really more communication between uh, our central New York, northern New York partners, but mainly our hospital networks working together to make sure that there was testing strategies, there were strategies and, and, and really monitoring how many beds that, uh, people would have available uh, when that time would come uh, for people, uh, you know, uh, needing the hospital level of care. Uh, Mr. McMahon, could you speak a little bit about what is the process for reporting? How do these numbers get to you? Yeah, so every day uh, I get briefed in the morning, uh, and, and again, it's changed a little bit now and uh, almost September, then in March and April, right? Um, but I get briefed in the morning. Uh, I have a pretty good sense on where uh, things are from, the, you know, we report out essentially, we have our own reporting out as far as new cases go. And so the night before, I pretty much know what the case load's going to look like that I report out the next day. Um, but then I'll get data points related to uh, testing, how many tests were done in the community. Um, is there anything with the cases that uh, we need to look at as far as any, are they, are these clusters? Are they community spread? Are they household contacts? Again, remember 
household context, we have that baked in. Once we get one case, we know that there's going to be probably a chance of uh, someone else in the house household getting uh, the virus just because of uh, how contagious it can be. So I'm getting all that in, in information in the morning. We're looking at all these things. Uh, and then uh, is there any reason for us to make any decisions based off of the data that we have in front of us? Uh, so I feel like the data has been increasingly positive as you get it. So I don't know that the the reaction to the positive news has been correlating along with it. I feel like we're still in, I don't know, what are we in phase point 4.12 or something now? The there, there hasn't been any seemingly update to go along or increasingly, I don't know what the right word is here, but to correlate correlating with the increased benefit or the increased positive news, we don't seem to be getting a relaxation of any of these restrictions. Is there something? I mean, I've, yeah. I'm assuming this is mostly coming from the state. Is there anything that at the county level that we can do to to you know take this new information and and use it and at least if it's not maybe can't fight back against the state, but can we at least spread the positive news amongst the people here that we're getting better and that you know the world's not coming to an end, which I feel like a lot of people still feel they're very scared. And I don't know that they're getting the information the way that they should be getting the information. Yeah, I think I agree, Sean. And, and one of the things that's been frustrating in this process, remember, this, this has been a, a process where you're planning and preparing. Uh, you're then doing mitigation, right? Some of the mitigation uh, people like, some of them they don't. Uh, I think uh, overall at the end of the pandemic, people will, uh, will judge us based off of our complete body of work because certainly... Uh, nobody's agreed with every decision we've made. Uh, but then it, 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 at that point, you're planning, you're preparing, you're mitigating, you're in full-blown response to the virus for a period of time. And then you start working on response, restart, and then response, restart, and recovery. And I think what you're really referencing is a phase four a restart. Uh, every phase and restart, we anticipated that we would see small spikes in infection rates and positivity rates. But actually, the reality uh, was that every step of the way, things went got better because people really bought into it. Businesses, when you let businesses open up, uh, they'll follow the rules. It's easier to regulate uh, the rules when businesses are open other, rather than when they're not open. And really, from that standpoint, we got to phase four and phase four wasn't what we all thought it would be. And uh, Remember, early on, uh, the state legislature gave the governor a, a very uh, broad-based uh, executive power authority. Even even uh, in that executive power, they even had the ability to limit some of our power here at the local level. Uh, so really what we've been doing is we've been uh, messaging, working through our control rooms. Uh, sometimes it's worked well, sometimes it hasn't. And so I would agree with you. Uh, if you look at where we are today, we have an infection rate under one. We have a positivity rate under one. And over the last uh, three weeks, we've brought back over 20,000 people into the community uh, who fit the demographic of where the virus has had the most cases, that being uh, 18 to 22 years old. So uh, we've been able to bring all these people back, reopen our economy, and still keep the data where it is, which tells you overall the virus is not as strong as it once was. Uh, we still have uh, situations where somebody will do something when they'll be sick and they go into a place and they, they spread it. Um, and so we still need people to uh, basically, uh, if you're sick, stay home. And if you have COVID symptoms, go get a test. Uh, and, the, and if 
people, everybody did that. Our data wouldn't be uh, 0.7 or 0.8 uh, seven-day rolling average. Uh, it'd probably be closer to 0.3 or 0.4. And so let's talk about some of the specific restrictions. I know you had made a plea to the state about trying to be a trial for gym openings here in New York. Um, obviously, they went ahead and reopened gyms under certain restrictions uh, back on the 24th, I think it was. Um, but you had tried to get out in front of that. Um, obviously, we had a, a local gym owner here who had sued the, the, the governor, uh, tried to get her gyms reopened. Um, what was your thought on your gym plan versus what the state did? And, um, you know, what was your thinking on trying to get out in front of that, I guess, and, 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 and wedging your, your way into that? Yeah, we've really a couple different times in this process, we've had to try to push the envelope when we think that we've lost balance and uh, the, the balance of looking at the public health overall, uh, including the economic interests and the damage that the virus is having uh, compared with the threat in front of us to what the virus can do to us. And so I think phase four, we've lost our balance to a degree. Uh, I think uh, that was why with, with gyms, public health is more than COVID. Uh, we have uh, folks who go to the gym because the doctor says you got to go work out. You have heart disease. Uh, you have diabetes. Uh, uh, we need you need to have exercise as part of that regimen. They can't afford equipment at home, uh, and this is how they stay healthy. Uh, we have mental health issues right now in this community like we've never had before because of the pandemic. And in addition to that, we've we've had abuse with drugs and opioids. So. Gyms are uh, a, a big help and a big uh, solution to a lot of these things. So we wanted to get out in front. Uh, essentially, the state went with a, a lot of our concepts. Uh, we're in the process of uh, the state then told us we have to go uh, uh, really uh, inspect all these gyms. This take, isn't something you've ever had. Classes you know. and your re research, right? <laughs> Yeah. And so we, we've been out doing that just so we can make sure these business owners stay open. Uh, they've been waiting and waiting and waiting. The public health needs them open and the, we, are, you know, our economy needs them open. So overall, in this process, there's been things when you look at churches opening up, uh, they were opened up because we were pushing them to open up, quite frankly. You look at auto dealers when they opened up. Uh, I opened them up here uh, locally, uh, and that led to pressure to do them out uh, throughout the, the state. So even though some have criticized uh, my approach to this, because I don't throw bombs at other elected officials in the middle of a pandemic, uh, we've pushed and we've pushed when we think the data shows that we need to. And at this point, the data shows uh, that we can reopen up many of these uh, industries a little bit more open the valve up more, and then if uh, if you see more cases specifically to those industries, uh, then there's a discussion. But uh, one of the things we have now that we didn't have is we have uh, over 200 contact tracers uh, who contact trace every case. So we, we know where folks pretty much get the virus uh, in, in circumstances, whether it's travel-related, whether it's a, uh, a, a known source of community spread, what's household contact, uh, a senior facility. Uh, we know now, so that allows us to make good decisions when you're talking about re reopening the economy. Uh, talking about that, as far as economic consequences, obviously there's been a lot of uh, talk about the national effects and how the GDP loss, to a lesser extent, people are aware New York State actually is faring far worse, at least from a GDP standpoint, than even the nation overall. 
Can you talk about what do you expect for Central New York as far as what has the cost been economically and, and business wise for people's livelihoods? Yeah, I mean, it, so uh, again, it, it, and it's different because you have certain uh, sectors that are doing really well, mm-hmm. uh, but hospitality has gotten absolutely destroyed. Uh, and so we're, and again, we still have weddings on the sidelines, and I've been pushing. Uh, for uh, weddings and banquet facilities to be allowed to to open up, utilize testing infrastructure, do what you got to do, put the regulations on, uh, but uh, allow them a chance. And so we, I just put forward a new proposal to the state uh, that uses data uh, and uh, you, you know as a, as a way to get these opened up more. But our hospitality industry has been absolutely decimated, uh, and, and that's where we've seen most of the pain. Uh, but 13% unemployment, uh, not good, uh, not sustainable. Uh, when you look at our own budgets, when we, you know, again, you, you shut down in March, you shut down in April, early May, and then you have phased in reopenings. Um, both big brothers of ours, uh, the state and federal government told us we had to be shut down in March and April, right? Uh, then in, in, in May, they kind of said, all right, time to open up the valve. So we're in a bad spot because 52% of our revenue is on sales tax. So not much going on when things are shut down. So um, here we are fighting the pandemic, doing all the work on the ground, doing more and more work uh, because we're being told we have to. Uh, and yet now we have all these economic losses ourselves. Our people have economic losses. Uh, and now, in addition to that, the state of New York saying that they're going to cut us, you know, twenty million dollars on top of it all. So, uh, tough spot to be in. Yeah, and just to piggyback on your hospitality take there, so I've always found it somewhat, I don't know, perplexing that uh, an establishment. I feel like this was similar to the uh, lawsuit that was brought up by the couple in Erie County, I think it was, uh, where the the venue could have a hundred and two hundred people at their venue the night before, but if they had called it a wedding the next day, it had to be under fifty, which you know, it's yeah. the same venue, uh, probably more intimate group of people that are more closely related and less likely to infect each, whatever. It was, seemed like complete backwards thinking, and maybe that's part of your proposal going forward. I'm sure you're well aware of that complexity. I, I am. And, I, and, and Judge Sotheby's ruling in the Northern District, we really, uh, we saw a lot of wisdom in that. Uh, we were disappointed. We encouraged the state, uh, instead of appealing it, to try to work with all the stakeholders and the associations to figure out a way to do it safely. Uh, one of the things that I think there would be merit in is if you're coming in from out of state, get a, you get a test within 48 hours uh, and, and do, do these things that uh, alleviate it. You could point we're, we're now into, I think, millions of cases in our country, right? We can point to a case with anything. Every person who has every type of job has had COVID. Governors have had COVID. That doesn't mean you, the governors or elected officials don't go to work anymore because they had COVID. Uh, so even though weddings have had cases where there was things there, the reality is is that most of those weddings, somebody came who, had, who was sick and they were symptomatic, and if they didn't come because they were sick, or if they got a test because they were coming from uh, out of state or out of the area, it, the, the spread probably never would have happened. So uh, there's no 100% risk mitigation with any virus. We need to do our best to get to uh, get to zero that we can with this one because there's no therapeutic yet or vaccine, but that will be here soon. So I, I kind of wanted to move to the probably, well, I guess at least my hot button topic is this nursing home issue. Um, so just looking at Onondaga County specifically, I think there's 204 deaths. I believe we have, 
Um, 127 were non-nursing home deaths. Um, so those non-nursing home deaths were broken. Well, Sean, into- Sean, yeah, so 127, uh, there's 77 that were attributed to nursing homes, which we, we believe, again, we're, we don't regulate nursing homes. Uh, we, we really tried to I- inject ourselves into this process early on. We believe the 77 uh, died in the, in the facilities, uh, but out of the 127, uh, we're confident some of those individuals uh, lived in a nursing home but went to the hospital and then died in the hospital. But again, that's data that the state of New York has that we do not have. So I guess that was going to be my question. If you don't have that number, if the state, I'm, I'm assuming somebody has that number and it hasn't been released yet. So obviously this is not, you're not working for the state here, but is there some kind of timeline for that information to be released? It seems it would be very important to know if of those 127, five or 100 were coming from nursing homes, and if there was some ballpark idea, because if it's closer to the 100 number, what are we really dealing with here? Um, but is there any kind of, I mean, I'm assuming that you would like to have that data as well if you're not already, uh, if it's not available to you. Yeah. So uh, how, do, how does the public and you guys, the public officials who need that data, get it? Yeah, I think right now our state, our state legislature and even the federal government's now looking into uh, some of this and pushing this. And why it's important, and maybe this is where you're going, Sean, is we, we know who gets impacted most by this virus. And uh, almost every one of uh, the deaths that we had, we believe, had a pre-existing condition, uh, and most of them very serious. Uh, so if you have a pre-existing condition, in addition to that, uh, you're over 70 years of age, you get the virus, you're, you're in for a fight. There's no question. And so if we knew all the data and we knew where, where these folks were and we know enough about our 204 neighbors that we've lost in this process, you can make decisions on how to protect those populations differently from the rest of the po- public. And that's, that, that's something that's valuable information for us to have when we're looking at this because we do, uh, I, I'm very confident and uh, with the reports out that we'll have uh, some sort of vaccine or therapeutic in 2020, but it may take till 2021 before it gets widely distributed uh, and manufactured. So in the meantime, we have the beginning of flu season. Uh, Maybe we get, uh, you know, a light, uh, you know, a light start of winter here, which would be very good. Um, But we still got we still have more work to do here. So it's important that we make good data-based decisions with our economy, but also that we're protecting those that are most vulnerable. And what follow up to that list of 127, those are community and hospital deaths. I, I noticed there was two, I don't call them outliers, but there was one in the 20 to 29 range and one in the 40 to 49 range. Do you have information on pre-existing conditions of those specific cases? Yeah, so the 40 to 49 had pre-existing conditions. Uh, the 20 to 29, uh, we believe uh, actually uh, most likely uh died of something other than COVID, but we have not been able to 100% uh, confirm that. Uh, so uh, we've uh, left uh, as that as individual in, in, in that data. They may have passed because of something other than COVID. Sorry about that. Uh, for nursing homes, did any of the nursing home directors or staff contact your office to talk about what was happening there? Or have you had any feedback from the industry? Yeah, you know, so early on, we tried to, we saw this coming and we tried to get out ahead of it because I I, I speak to my peers and I spoke to Steve Newhouse in Orange County uh, down by the city 
and he told me, right, like, I just got, you know, a nursing home, and it's it's pretty much gone. I go, what do you mean? He goes, one case went in, there. everybody has it. I go, everybody? He said, everybody. And this is early on. We don't have any nursing home cases. So I tried to push with these nursing homes early on. You need to get, we, we need to get in there and test everybody. And, uh, and, and, I, and so uh, we got pushback. And we got pushback because we're not the regulating agency. And so uh, fast forward, what we wanted to do, the state of New York eventually did, and then the nursing homes wanted to work with us much more because they had to test and test regularly. And at that point, uh, we were managing kind of the testing infrastructure within the community, uh, and we had to pair up different buildings with different labs to meet those mandates. But initially, we were not getting good cooperation uh, with uh, the, the state or the, uh, the state health department or the nursing homes themselves uh, because we weren't their regulator. And so they didn't, want, they didn't have to talk to us then. Later on, they were asking for our help. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think maybe that's the touched on the biggest problem of mine is the lack of transparency in this whole thing. I mean, we, we count our nursing home deaths different than every other 49 states, which should be a red flag unto itself. And there's all this anecdotal evidence that there's a problem here that they seem to be, you know, again, I don't know covering up is the right word, but they're clearly not going to allow us access to the data to find out if it was or not. And I think that's been the frustration with most of the people here who are on the outside who've been paying attention to know that the, 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 the problem has been in the elderly and specifically the nursing homes. And then to have these handful of state governors, <clears throat> excuse me, including our own, have this mandate where they, they, they force these, these facilities to take in positive patients and then not give us the data about it. So it seems like there's this huge circle of, again, cover-up going on. And I think that's where the frustration lies. It definitely lies in with me. Like, I, I, I wish this information was available. I think, again, you would be able to make better decisions going forward, as we all would. Yeah. So yeah, no, I, I think so, and I think it, it is, and, and everybody should be frustrated, and the, the, the one light is, you know, at least for us, the state legislature is finally doing something related to this to, to try to ask those questions, yeah. and uh, they're all fair questions. Yeah, so go ahead, Ben. Uh, just to return, I, I don't want to get too far off topic here. When we talk about a, a vaccine, herd immunity, whatever our way out of this is, as far as the experts that you have been speaking with, what are we expecting for a, a threshold or a, or a herd immunity? How do we get out? What's it got to be? Yeah, I, I think it's got to be therapeutics in a vaccine. If you think about what, what herd immunity, uh, certain parts of the state might be able to pull that off, right? But uh, we never had enough sick people to meet the testing mandates um, as restart started. So we had to move to asymptomatic testing just to be able to qualify for restart. So I, I think what we're seeing is uh, Pfizer, Moderna, they all got good stuff uh, moving quickly. Uh, I think the FDA uh, hinted this week that if they're comfortable enough with uh, third stage trials, they might allow the, the manufacturing to happen. Uh, then certainly I think you're going to find that uh, you make the vaccine most readable to the, your most vulnerable, whether it's your seniors, your nursing home, seniors, assisted living facilities, uh, emergency responders, teachers, uh, and then that's how you get it going. Um, but that allows the other game changer here, though, from an economic standpoint, guys, is if this Abbott's test, where five bucks, 15 minutes, if this thing has legs, uh, and it's really 95% accurate, 
I don't know how you can keep some of these businesses on the sidelines the way they are, even with the virus there. I've always said, who cares if a thousand people are together if we know nobody has COVID? Who cares? Um, and so uh, how do you know? You test. So having the challenge now is rapid testing. We've built up some of that infrastructure, um, but we're talking still four or five hours. Um, if within 15 minutes you can take a test, uh, cost you five bucks, uh, and then go to a basketball game or, or, or go to a wedding or, uh, or go to the bar or whatever you want, you know, if, if everybody knows you, you know, you don't have it, then, you know, th this kind of takes care of itself. The one thing, one specific, I guess, I don't know if it's industry is the right word. I, we, we didn't touch on schools specifically here. Um, it should be back to school shopping. Uh, you know, everybody kind of turning up the seasons here, getting ready for a uh, new exciting, uh, whatever. And we're not going to have that. It seems like everything's being delayed here or several are being delayed anyway. But as we pointed out, the, the, you know, the vulnerable people are the, not the school age kids. They're, they're, they're much, much older than that. They're, if kids are not getting sick and I don't want to use cases as a, a equivalent of getting sick, if they're testing positive, that's one thing, but if they're being hospitalized or, or having, you know, problems from the virus, that's one thing. But if they're just getting sick, passing it amongst asymptomatically amongst the kids and that spreads equally and there's no uh, calamity from that, I'm trying to figure out where the problem is of opening the schools. I, I, I could see some teachers who have, may have some medical conditions um, being vulnerable in that situation, but the kids themselves are, are, are not, I don't believe. I'm just a bartender, not a medical doctor here, but all the data says that the kids are not really vulnerable to this. What, what's, the, what's the big holdup? Is it just vulnerable teachers? Yeah, so that's a great question. And so uh, a couple things. I think I've been pretty vocal on this is that we've put – uh, this community in the best position possible for these districts to, uh, from a position of strength, bring, bring children back to school. And uh, our preference was that we would bring back, uh, at minimum, uh, elementary age children. Uh, and why being, A, you can't keep little kids home alone and have that uh, be okay, right? I have a children protective family services department. If somebody calls me and says there's a seven-year-old home alone, that opens up an investigation, let alone uh, potential for a child uh, to uh, really, really be looked at whether they're in a safe environment. So we can't make policy that's going to drive thousands of kids in that same boat. So that's A. B, when you look at the data, Sean, that's all we do is we look at the data. 31 cases, 5 through 10, in out of our county. Um, out of the 31, I can tell you how they all got it. They all got it from a household contact from mom, dad, or a sibling. So uh, when you look at it, the kids, the little ones especially, weren't these super spreaders that people feared they could be in the beginning. And so what do we do? All right. So what we've done to have the, the, the safest back to school anywhere in this state is I've set up testing for all the school districts for the adults. Why the adults? 96% of our cases are adults. So we have the adults because the adults are most likely to bring it into the buildings, not the kids. And so, if you, again, the adults don't have it, uh, good chance we're not going to have uh, cases. In addition to that, PPE, sanitizing, uh, we're going to be doing saliva-based pool sampling tests in the buildings throughout the year looking for COVID. Uh, so w when you look at what we've done, 
as far as we already started out in a bubble because of our low infection rate. And now, because of the PPE, the distancing, the sanitizing, the temperature checks, you already create a miniature bubble. And then within that bubble, we're going to be doing uh, more and more testing to find that case before it ever happens to, to spread. So we feel really good about that. After the teachers, what do we want to do? We want to test the high school students. Why? We know the more socially active, sexually active kids have found COVID. It's a fact. And so, if we, again, to your point, a lot of these kids are asymptomatic. We've had, we have had some symptomatic kids. But many of them are asymptomatic. Find them in the beginning and do isolate, quarantine, and then back to school we go. So uh, we, we think we've put this community in a great position to succeed uh, for a successful school year. Uh, we are really encouraging districts to reassess some of their planning uh, because uh, we think they can do more in some cases. Uh, touching on the PPE aspect, especially for the younger children in elementary school, uh, I'm going to throw this out here and I just want your feedback on it. My concern as a parent of young children is I'm going to send my seven-year-old to school every day with a mask on. I love my seven-year-old, but he's disgusting. Uh, what he does in that mask is horrific. And watching his ability to touch other things and other people and then go right back to his mask um, it's not exactly my proudest moment as a parent. So sending him in wearing a mask to protect from the spread when I know the data says he's not at a great risk of spreading, he's not at a great risk of getting anybody else or himself sick, my concern is that the flu is still out there and other viruses are still out there that are actually a threat to children. Healthy children every year die of the flu. Am I, is this concern at all legitimate or am I just... I don't want to say overreacting, but am I am I missing the mark on that? I, you're not right. So your your concerns for your kid, you know, uh, I I respect where you're coming from. I think when you find balance on this issue, and again, you have various stakeholders. Um, the 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 mask wearing uh, is a way to find balance for these kids. Originally, it was six feet. Uh, apart, no masks. If you're going to be within six feet, you wear one, just like the adults, right? That makes sense. Um, to your point, there are many other things that are going to be in the school in this semester. Uh, we're going to be working uh, to address some of the flu stuff. Uh, and again, some parents are okay with the vaccine for their kids for the flu, some are not. Uh, but the hand sanitizing is something I think we can get really good at yep. uh, with the kids. Uh, I think that's our best bet here. I'll give you this data point. Uh, in April of 19, I think we had 60 to 80 cases of influenza A and B. Uh, April of 20, we had zero. So uh, we attribute that purely to the hand sanitizing that was going on, uh, some of the distancing efforts going on with COVID. Uh, that, that works for more than COVID. It works for all these other respiratory illnesses as well. So, but yeah, I don't think you're off. I, 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 it's going to be tough, right? Uh, I got a four-year-old. My four-year-old, uh, you know, We've been practicing the mask wearing. Um, he's he's doing pretty good with it. Uh, you know, his dad's a county executive, so he's got to tough through it. Uh, but the uh, you, you know, but it, it's real. It's real for parents. I hear it. Um, and, and again, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, but my hope is uh, this is all about this whole process has been about giving the scientists and the doctors time to 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 get a therapeutic right. And once there's a therapeutic. Uh, we got to get back to uh, what life looked like uh, before COVID. 
And so, and so in part to do that, I, let's move past COVID a little bit here, but related. We talked about the financial struggles of the county, and I'm guessing it's going to be the state. Um, so let's talk about um, <clears throat> the desire or the need for federal funding for some of the municipalities here that are struggling. Um, yeah. You know, how, how, how do you tell the guy in, or the gal in Ames, Iowa, that uh, their tax dollars should come to New York and, you know, help out me and you and Mr. Husong over here and our, and our struggle here in the county or in the state? I mean, there, there's, yeah, so- there's going to be pushback. Yeah, well, there is pushback, or else we, we would have gotten it in May, right? So they told us they're going to get this thing done in May, and they didn't. Um, so uh, what? my pitch is very simple. I'm not asking I, – I had a uh, 2019 balanced budget with a surplus. I had a 2018 balanced budget with a surplus. That surplus will help us get through this. Um, but the reality is, is you told me to shut down federal government, bottom line. So uh, it, it, this is an unfunded mandate. Uh, you told us to shut down. Uh, we did. Uh, the state told us to shut down. We did. So you need to cover the revenue loss during that period of time. And uh, again, for us, uh, that will help us weather this storm. Um, and uh, certainly, uh, is not helpful. You can't tell somebody to do something and not pay for it. We scream about it all day long with the state government with unfunded mandates. Uh, the, the feds are on the same boat here. And so let's turn to a, 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 a project of yours. Um, you're trying to help out some of these local businesses with the uh, small business grant program. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So one of the nice things, and, and people could say, well, if you're going to have to do this, the Crondi County Industrial Development Agency, uh, the IDA that does uh, deals with businesses and nonprofits uh, for retention of job and new job creation, uh, they get paid in fees, IDA fees, and certainly Amazon gave us a very large IDA fee uh, recently. So we're taking half a million dollars of that. We're reinvesting it back into small businesses uh, so that they uh, can get uh, grants, uh, up to $10,000 uh, awarded grants uh, for pandemic-related business expenses, uh, whether it's PPE, whether it's uh, uh, ventilation systems, whether it's uh, different things you had to uh, purchase to be in compliance with new COVID standards, um, th- this is something that we can give back to them uh, to help them a little bit more. Uh, and, and that's what we've been doing. From a regulation standpoint, Sean, I think we talked early on, I have an executive order that allows uh, outdoor dining uh, to go into uh, not to have to go through any of the, the red tape through local planning boards or zoning boards. Uh, if you have property and you want to put a, a, a table up to do outdoor dining, go ahead. So that's been very helpful for many of these restaurants as they have capacity constraints indoors that can make up that those constraints outdoors. So we're open uh, for your listeners. If they got any other ideas, we're, we're, we're all ears when it comes to ways to help the small businesses get through this pandemic. And hopefully flourish. Well, I'm, I promise you I'm not going to forward my emails that ask me a bunch of questions to you today. So we'll not go there. <laughs> um, what, what, what didn't we touch on here? What, what, what else did the community know? I mean, I, we, I think we touched on a lot here. But, like, what, what did we miss, if anything? Or what did you want to elaborate anything more on uh, yeah, as we move I, forward? Look, I, we, we live in a great community. And we've really uh, responded well to what is uh, – a, a historic challenge, and uh, I think for me, the uh, 
it's been it's been very difficult because you've had uh, every step of this process, you feel the anxiety, and 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 these are real people, real people's lives. And at times, uh, I've been the face of this pandemic locally. So at t- at times, people have reached out and said, "Hey, you know, please please open this up or that up." And if I had the power, I can say things would have been done a little differently. Um, you know, when it comes to certainly restart and uh, uh, the way we've done this. Uh, but overall, I'm proud of the community. Uh, they've d- people have done things that they don't necessarily believe in, uh, but they've done them because out of respect for their neighbor uh, and to de- help deal with that anxiety uh, that they have. And so, uh, overall, we've done really well. Uh, I-, I think we're we're really in the fourth quarter now. Uh, as I see your sports analogy here of sports clicks and politics, uh, and so. Uh, we just got to stay strong, not, not do anything. Um, you, you know, you, we, we know it works. We know the basics. We got to keep doing it because here's the deal. Not everybody wants to get back to 2019. Uh, some people are actually having too much fun with this. So uh, we need, you know, for us to get our lives back, we still got to hunker down, uh, be smart, be safe, uh, so that uh, our data stays where it is and we don't give others excuses to go backwards. Fair. Yeah, I think that was fair. Uh, Executive McMahon, I'm going to let you go do more important things than hang out with us too. Um, I appreciate your time and your input, and uh, hopefully I'll be in touch here maybe in the future about maybe as we get into overtime of this or phase five maybe someday. <laughs> Either way, sometime yep. in the future, I'd like to uh, touch base with you as we uh, you know move out of this. Hey, I'd love to. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you for your time. Thanks. And we do appreciate the county executive yeah, taking the time. I do want to thank him for that. Uh, it was a informative interview, I think. Um, I think we touched on everything we needed to touch on a little bit there mm-hmm. and kind of uh, kind of get a lay of the land where we are and where we could be going. Um, you know, as as we get more data, he seems to be plugged into the data. And if that's the case, hopefully that stays the same. And, uh, you know, we, we move forward here. So, um I don't have much as far as uh, additional uh, content here. Um, we're still in the NBA playoffs, and we uh, John Rahm won the uh, first leg of the PGA playoff here. I don't really have anything to talk about other than I think he shot six under on Sunday to to take out DJ. But I mean, it was the sixty foot double breaking putt that he put in in the playoff that was you know sort of a big deal. I mean, he's well he's one of those young guns, so. Um, yeah, I think that uh, I love what he had to say about following the data and. Some of these things, as you and I have discussed, we seem to be making arbitrary rules at this point of just shooting it out there to make it sound good, and that's that can get frustrating. I can't say I share his optimism on a number one a vaccine being ready by t- at the end of 2020. I also don't share what I'm going to presume is his optimism that people will be willing to take said rushed vaccine on any sort of mass accounting uh, yeah, I mean, if we're if we're if we're using that to isolate the vulnerable, then you know, the, you're, more most open people, to it. Yeah. So um, we'll see. Like I said, you know, I, I I'm I'm sh- not sure that this how bad this ever really was. I guess if we could really get that nursing home number, that may give us some some light on where the problem was at the beginning, in the middle, and the end. And you know, we'll we'll wait and hope that our governor will give that info to us or the health department or whoever in the uh, state department wants to uh, 
be transparent for once. So again, either our nursing home data is so much worse than what we are currently seeing, or our data for all non-vulnerable populations is so much worse than any other area of the world that it defies explanation. Exactly right. So you get to choose which of these paths you want as a New Yorker. Congratulations. Love all these fun options. I am going to throw this out there anyway. Our our economic fallout from this is going to be vast. You, you're going to see it extrapolate out from New York City. This is bad. This is not something most people are ready to handle, and we're not going to have an immediate bounce back locally because nationally has a far less problem than New York State does overall, New York City specifically. So whatever we can do, just if you own a business, prepare for it because this is going to continue being a problem. Uh, If a business goes under, yes, the market will correct that and a new business will come in where demand will go, but it's not instantaneous. And there's going to be delays. There's going to be issues. I don't know how we're going to recover from the loss of tax revenue, both at the state and local level, I, I honestly don't know. No, I don't think anybody does, and I don't know that anybody could even fathom a time frame on that if there ever is one. So. Right, and I think that if you think that's not a big deal, I, I encourage you that you're going to want to look around because the, the number of wealthy people that are leaving New York City right now is high, and whether you like them or not, they do pay the vast majority of the income taxes in the state. Uh, for an example, uh, the guy who just bought... The Panthers, Tepper, John Tepper, something like that. He's a hedge fund manager, lived in New Jersey, made all kinds of money. That man left New Jersey and moved to Florida, and they had to redo the state budget because it was that big of an impact when one guy left because it was I mean, it was hundreds of millions of dollars of state tax revenue. If we lose 400 of the top 1,000 highest earners in New York State in one year, even if it's 200, I mean, if it's 20%, we have a large problem from a tax revenue standpoint. And now we want the federal government to bail us out. But the federal government is $25 trillion in debt. 26, I'm sorry. Can't forget that last trillion. Like this is a number that is, that's a 26 with 12 zeros after it before the period. Uh, These numbers are astronomical. And as much as I agree with the sentiment of if the government mandates you shut down, the government has to pay for it. We are not a monarchy. We are a representative republic. And that is part of the takings clause of our entire constitution. If the government takes it from you, they have to compensate you. I just don't know where we're going to get the money from. They're going to print it. We just, you can't draw blood from a stone. You're going to keep printing money. Well, at least that's never ended poorly. No, no. Well, like I said, I mean, that's, that's the only, that's what they got. They can print it there. You know, there's no, there's, they can't, there's no way they're going to be able to pass a bill through Congress. That's going to fund anybody. Like it's just not going to happen. They will print the money. Inflation will be what it is, and we'll all suffer the consequences in the long run. So, And it's just going to continue down this path of, yes, you, that will kick the can down the road, but eventually the bill becomes due, or the bill comes due. And I don't care if you're a municipal government, state government, or the federal government, you are not immune from basic accounting principles. So watching this happen, I have concerns on state pensions, state funding for uh the, the more welfare-related programs, the public employees. I- yeah, listen, there's going to be a reshuffle of government, especially in this state, in this county, in this city. There, you know, there's going to be a, you know, a culling of services. A we're, we're just not going to have the money to do it. So they're going to have to find additional ways to fund some of this stuff. Uh, maybe I can, uh, you know, be can piggyback on my boy Larry Sharp when he ran for governor in 2018 about trying to find public, like naming rights things for some of these public. Uh, 
uh, assets that we have, you know, bridges and tunnels he used in his, his campaigning. So maybe there's things that we can do that uh, to raise some money, but it's not going to be, it's not going to offset the total losses. There's no way. So no, and it's, it's, it's devastating. It's that it, we all freaked out at the end of the last quarter when it came out that the U.S. had lost 8% of GDP year over year. Everybody lost their mind. It was the worst number ever, and it was on pace for a negative 32% on the year. It was negative 8 in the quarter. That same quarter, New York State did negative 16. I, it, when I tell you it's worse, I don't mean it's a little worse. I mean it's markedly worse, and we are dragging on our restrictions farther than or longer than anybody else is with almost no data to back that up. No, It like makes said, no sense. Like I said, I feel like the data we need, they're hiding. So, um, Well, that's because then people would realize they made a mistake, and they would maybe stop placing such blind faith in these leaders, not counting our county executive. I'm talking state level right here, because it wasn't Ryan McMahon's order that said the nursing homes had to take the sick people, and they weren't allowed to test them. That was our governor. So, guess what? You get to choose. Either Andrew Cuomo made a horrendously wrong decision with that, or Ron DeSantis is a genius with the foresight that nobody else had to protect the nursing homes. You could choose whichever one of those you want, but one of them's true. Right. Well, like I said, the, I, I think the county executive was on it. He's on hospitalizations. He's on deaths. He, mm-hmm. sees where the, he sees where the data needs to be, and obviously the age disparity is something that people are still becoming aware of, even though it's been out there since the beginning. So um, on that note, Mr. Husong, anything else you'd like to leave the audience with? It's just so nice to actually hear somebody that's an elected official use accurate data and not be afraid of saying what is obviously true. Yeah, I almost don't that. know what to do with it, but good for him, and I, I'm very happy that he is our county executive. Yeah, and like I said, like I said, as we move forward to this, we'll bring him back on, try to get a reassessment of where we are. Uh, hopefully, we actually get out of whatever these phases are, and we're actually just living our lives since not have any kind of uh, qualification with it. So uh, on that note, I want to thank everybody for uh, tuning in, coming in today for the live, first live interview for us. I know we had a little hiccup here and a little late start, but uh, I think we worked it out. Um, Next week, Labor Day Monday, we are going to have a show. It's probably just going to be me and Ben here talking it out. I will say, I believe I'm going to have, maybe I haven't even told you yet, this Mr. Hughesong, but our September 14th guest, former PGA professional Jim Roy, is going to join us. Uh, he's going to uh, kind of talk about what it's like he's caddying for his son on the Corn Ferry Tour these days, and he is a uh, going to talk about all the uh, testing and whatnot that they have to go through for being on the tour. It's the very same as the PGA, and he's going to give us a little bit of U.S. Open breakdown. So we got U.S. Open that week, and he's going to kind of talk about that. So that should be fun. Outstanding. Um, so check with us next week for just me and Ben. We'll try to keep you entertaining, and the uh, following week on the 14th there, we'll uh, talk golf, uh, all things golf with uh, Jim Roy. So on that note, thank you very much. And we'll see you all again next week.